Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a series of programs on the subject of Once Saved, Always Saved. This program is a continuation of the previous ones. In the previous program, I was explaining that there are different Gospels. Different Gospels in the sense that people have different ideas about what the gospel is, and this is going to have to be understood when addressing this topic of can a person lose their salvation or not. You have to consider the definition of the gospel you are considering. You have to have a clear definition because the definition itself effectively defines the answers to the questions such as, Can God take or will he take salvation away from someone? Or can an individual remove themselves from the salvation that they have? Or can they reject the salvation that they have? The answers to these questions are established by what a person believes about the gospel itself. Once you define your gospel, then you are able to define the answers to these questions. And this is where a lot of the argumentation A lot of the confusion comes from. It comes from these different ideas, from these different beliefs about what the gospel is, and so this has to be addressed. Now, in the previous program, I gave two examples of gospels that I do not believe in, but that are very popular. The first gospel I explained was the gospel of forgiveness, and of course, these definitions are just my own. I've just made these up. To say that there is a gospel of forgiveness is just my own creation, but what I mean by A gospel of forgiveness is that a person believes that their salvation is achieved when they accept the forgiveness of God for all of their past sins. The problem with this gospel is what do you do with your future sins? There are, of course, many variations concerning how people will approach the future sins. But when I talk about the gospel of forgiveness, that's normally what I mean or what I've heard other people express to me, is that they will normally recognize that you have been cleansed or you have been forgiven of all of your past sins. But when it comes to your future sins, well, that can be a fuzzy area, and different people will handle that area in different ways. Some people will say that the previous forgiveness that Jesus provided on the cross does deal with the future sins, But he has also instituted a new sacrificial system, a sacrificial system of confession, no longer shedding the blood of animals, but now we are going to apologize. That's the new sacrificial system in order to deal with or resolve the concerns of future sins. And then, of course, there are all kinds of other deviations that a person ends up in when it comes to the issues of how often do you need to ask for forgiveness, And what happens if you die and you have not asked for forgiveness lately? What about those sins that you committed between the time you asked for forgiveness last up until the point when you die? There are many concerns that people will begin to address and entire books can be written, entire Talmuds can be written about how to resolve these concerns, these uncertainties about forgiveness 
when a person believes in a gospel of forgiveness and forgiveness alone. I, of course, believe that forgiveness is what makes salvation possible, but forgiveness in and of itself is not salvation. It's my belief, it is my gospel, that when a person receives the Holy Spirit, when they receive the restoration of the Holy Spirit, then this Spirit will never depart from them because the sin issue was completely resolved by the crucifixion, through which God executed forgiveness. And so I believe that it is forgiveness that makes salvation possible because it is forgiveness that ensures that there will never be any sin that a person can commit that will cause the Holy Spirit to depart from within that individual. But their salvation has to do with being made alive by the restoration of the Holy Spirit the restoration of the spirit of life. So that's how I understand the gospel. And so when I hear people speak about the gospel of forgiveness, in most cases they will agree with me that the restoration of the Holy Spirit is important, that a person does have Christ dwelling within them. In general, they agree with that. But unfortunately, in most cases, they are so overwhelmed by their position on forgiveness that it leads to a state of uncertainty with regards to their future salvation because of the continual sins that a person will commit. Was the forgiveness that was provided for them at the point of salvation truly adequate to resolve those sins in the future? That takes me to the next gospel that I explained, and that was the gospel of holiness, which could be considered to be the other extreme of the gospel of forgiveness. The other extreme in the sense that you can achieve a sinless state You can control your flesh, you can get your flesh under control to the extent where you will stop sinning. I consider that to be a definition of what I call the gospel of holiness. What it means to be a Christian is it means that God has forgiven you so that he has miraculously now empowered you in some way so that you will never sin again, or if you do, it won't be significant. There are a lot of people who believe in this kind of a gospel, and in many cases people waffle between the two, between what I described as the gospel of forgiveness on one end and the gospel of holiness on the other end. They're normally somewhere in between. On occasion you do find someone who's close to the extremes, but in most cases people are somewhat in between, which is why it is so important to speak to a person individually, personally, about what they believe the gospel is because they probably will have a bit of a unique belief concerning what the gospel is and what our new life in Christ is truly about. This has to be understood. But when it comes to the gospel of holiness, what this means to most people is that you will stop sinning, that this is the goal and the objective of the Christian life. It is the goal of the Christian life to get all of the sin out of your life. Now, I do not believe that getting all of the sin out of your life through overcoming your flesh in some way is the criteria for salvation, and I certainly do not believe that it is the goal of salvation. I do believe that a believer should anticipate there being some kind of change in who they are as a person at some point to the extent where they could see that the Lord did a work within them and that it would probably be measurable as a reduction of sin in their lives. But my point is is that this is going to be a side effect of the relationship a person has with their God. It is not the goal. It is a side effect. I, of course, have a lot to say about the subject of overcoming sin. 
I recorded three programs on the topic. Those are available in the radio archive, Overcoming Sin, where I have a lot to say about this. I would expect there to be a reduction of sin. I would expect there to be a change. But this is the main point when it comes to this subject. The main point, the real issue that needs to be understood is that in most cases people will confront you, they certainly confront me, about their gospel of holiness, that they say that that is necessary. It is necessary to pursue and achieve holiness because if you fail, then you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. My response to that is very simple. It is not complicated at all. Is it working for you? Has it truly happened in your life? Do you believe that you have overcome the sins in your life through what you believe? If it is true, if it is true that that has happened for you, all I can say is good for you. That's between you and the Lord. But as for myself, and I have had enough time in my life experience trying to live this way, I can say with great conviction myself that I saw No reduction of sin in my life trying to be holy, trying to live a holy life, trying to get all of the sin out of my life or getting any sin out of my life at all. I personally found no success whatsoever, no matter how sincere I was, no matter how devoted, no matter how committed in the depths of my heart, even though I could find ways of managing my flesh and behavior to an extent in the depths of my heart, in terms of who I was as a person. Not only was there no positive effect, but I found that sin was being stirred up even more because of the dynamics of the law, because of the dynamics of the Old Covenant. There's a lot to say about this, of course. I can only summarize in this program that the Old Covenant was given by God in order to stir up more sin. Paul addressed this in Romans, Romans chapter 7, when he talked about coveting, for example, that I would not have known what it was to covet until the law said, do not covet, and it stirred up within me every covetous desire. That's an example. There are several other ways that the law stirs up sin, which I will not address in this program for the sake of time. I just wanted to mention that overall, that this is where the confusion usually exists when it comes to the competing views concerning what the gospel is that people truly believe that they can achieve a sense of holiness, that they can get the sin out of their life, and this is not going to happen. But because people believe that, or at least they want to believe that, to the extent where they will beat you to death, explaining to you that you have to live this way, that you have to overcome your sin, and in many ways they're preaching to themselves, trying to encourage themselves to do that, The reason why this happens is because people do not understand the differences between the old and the new covenants. They don't distinguish between the two. They're trying to hang on to the old because, in general, they understand the old. They do not really understand the new. And so they don't know what to turn to. They don't know what the new covenant is, and so they don't know what to enter into. They don't know what it means to abide in Christ. They don't know what it means to rest in what he has accomplished. They don't know how because they don't know what. They don't know what it is, and so they don't know how to enter into it and how to live according to it. The other problem is is that people want the old covenant. I have found a number of people who really want the Old Covenant. They want the blessings of the Old Covenant. They want to be able to do good works and believe that God owes them something because of their good works. These are difficult things for people to let go of. 
when they believe that they can get something from God, it's difficult to give up that mechanism through which they believe they can get something because that means that they have to give up their pursuit. They have to give up their dream. They have to give up their goal. And this can be a real challenge for a lot of people. But when understanding what the new covenant is, when a person understands what that is, however that may be achieved, they have to encounter somebody in their life or spend a significant amount of time in the scriptures studying the differences between the two, that's what is required. Until a person achieves that or engages in that or experiencing that, they do not know what to turn to. This is a real obstacle that I have on occasion when I speak with people and I say, there is a new covenant. Enter into the new covenant. Well, if they don't know what it is, they don't know what to enter into, let alone how they might be able to do that. And when you couple that with the issues related to the temptations of the blessings that are described in the old covenant, those are tough to let go of. They really are. Until, of course, a person will acknowledge that they're never going to be obedient enough, that they're never going to get them anyway. You're never going to get all of those blessings that are offered or described in the Old Covenant because you'll never achieve the sinless state that is necessary in order to establish a claim on God such that he must provide those things for you. So a lack of understanding of the Old Covenant is a very serious matter. Consider Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. And from here I'll proceed to talk about the individual verses, not all of the verses, but most of the verses that people will usually bring up in order to establish their positions concerning this topic. I'm not going to be able to address all of them, but I can do many of them. What I'm going to explain from these verses should be adequate for you to go into the scriptures and look at the ones that I am not mentioning These explanations should give you enough information so that you can look into the scriptures and have a better understanding of the other verses that I'm not going to mention in the following programs. But beginning in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, it says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, when it comes to the topic of salvation, the application for this verse is to say that salvation or entering into the kingdom of heaven is conditional upon your righteousness exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, the way that most people will cope with this or how they will explain this is they will say, in summary, they will say you have to do the best you possibly can And then Jesus will make up the difference for where you fall short, and that will get you to be able to exceed the righteousness that the scribes and the Pharisees were able to achieve. What that means is, is that you are to live a life doing good works, getting the sin out of your life, doing all the things that you can according to the law that God presented. That is what you are to do. And in addition to that, if you believe in Jesus, then that gets you over the edge so that you are a candidate to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, in the programs that I produced on the Sermon on the Mount, I, of course, addressed this verse and many others related to it. I will summarize it just simply by saying that the Lord Jesus was explaining to the people that they needed to live in obedience to the law. He did teach the Old Covenant. He was explaining that the scribes and the Pharisees, they were dealing with two issues. The first issue was that they had added a number of laws that were not part of the law that was given through Moses. That was a concern. 
but they also were not observing all of the laws in the law of Moses to the satisfaction of the Lord Jesus. There were two issues. They were adding more laws and they were not obeying or observing enough. So when the Lord Jesus said that you have to exceed that, he was calling the people to live in obedience to the law. And he was establishing the criteria that a person will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless they meet this criteria that their righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You might notice that in this verse, he did not say what you must achieve. You just keep reading. He explains that you have to be as perfect as God is perfect. Then you will be able to have an eternal presence in the kingdom of heaven, which, of course, will never be achieved. Well, that's the point. He was explaining to the people that they needed to pursue something so that they could eventually come to the point of recognizing that it was not achievable, that they would never be able to reach the standard that he established. So by definition, they have to have an alternative. I would like to mention that as you study the law, you will never find anything in the law that says that if you obey all of his commandments, you will be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't say that. This is an extrapolation that the Lord Jesus provides, but there is no specific reference that I can point to and say that if you observe all of these commandments or the ones that are specifically listed, then you will enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is an extrapolation, which I think is a reasonable one. I don't think it's unreasonable at all, because if there was going to be any criteria by which God would use for someone to enter into the kingdom of heaven, well, the law could certainly be used. It was adequate for the criteria he was establishing here on earth in order to define righteousness, define righteousness by obedience if a person wanted to try to achieve it which, of course, is unachievable. But either way, if there's any criteria, he might as well use this. This is reasonable criteria, and to offer the blessings as an incentive in addition to the kingdom of heaven. Knowing that there is an eternity, that there is an eternal life, that God created us humanity, to be eternal beings, knowing and understanding that, you would expect there to be some criteria he can use that. Nothing wrong with that at all. Using the criteria of the Old Covenant, though, can be deceptive. It can be deceiving because many people will look at that and say that that must be it. But no, because it is unachievable, there has to be an alternative. The alternative is the New Covenant, another covenant that is not like the Old Covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, that there will be a new covenant established with the nation of Israel and it will not be like the old and it will be invoked or instantiated through the forgiveness of sins because he will remember our sins no more. Prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 31, realized when the Lord Jesus died and rose from the dead. It was fulfilled at that point. It went into effect, and it was something different because there had to be something different. So when you go through the verses in the Scriptures, you have to keep in mind that the Lord at certain times, especially in the Gospels, was addressing people who believed that they had found a way to live in obedience to the extent where they would have a place in the kingdom of heaven. They would be able to establish a claim on some region, some area, 
some place in the kingdom of heaven. They could establish a claim on the kingdom of heaven because they fulfilled the criteria through their obedience, which, of course, is not going to be realized. It's not true. So there had to be an alternative, and the alternative was, of course, the new covenant. Continuing into Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. Can you hear that? He says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, which is defined by the Mosaic law, defined by the law. Because you fail to live in obedience to the law, you are to depart from me. Well, if that is the criteria, who will there ever be anyone who will ever be able to stand before the Lord and establish a claim on the Lord's kingdom, by saying that I don't practice lawlessness. I may have done it for a little while before, but then I embraced your forgiveness for all those past sins. I started over, and I found a way to live a life of holiness. And because of that, I don't practice lawlessness, and you are going to establish a place for me here. There is no way that's going to happen. That's the point. There is no one who will ever fulfill this, which means that there must be another way, and that other way was provided for through the new covenant. There will be people who will go before him, and I personally do not want to witness this because I would consider this to be very embarrassing. People go before him and say things like, now we prophesied in your name and so you have to let us in. What do you mean I have to let you in? You have a claim on the kingdom of heaven? You get to be here because you prophesied? Well, good for you, but that's not going to be good enough. You think that's good enough? You probably want it to be good enough because it certainly is easy to do. Not a lot of difficulty there. If you're going to cast out demons, well, that might be a little bit more complex. But considering that the demons might voluntarily leave, giving you the impression that you cast them out, they can do that in order to give you some position of authority or give the impression that you know more than you don't. And so you can go out and tell a bunch of spiritual lives to people, convincing them of things that are not true. And then you have more failures, more consequences, more sin that erupts from that. Sure, he can do that. It's in his interest. You really think that casting out demons, oh, Lord, look, you know, I cast out demons. And so you have a place for me in the kingdom of heaven here, don't you? Because, you know, I did this for you. I did these works and I did them in your name. You are the one who obtained the credit. You are the one who obtained the value. You owe me God. I don't want to see that. I don't want to be a part of that. I really don't want to witness that because to me, I would have trouble with that. I really would. If I was God, I would have a difficult time restraining myself as I was sending them to hell. That would be a challenge, which is another reason why it's a good thing that I'm not God. I don't have to deal with those things. What else did he say? Cast out demons and done many wonders in your name. Wonders, works, whatever they were, the point is, is that he says, many will come to me saying that this is the criteria. This is the criteria. They did all these things. And he's going to say, no, because you still failed in something else. 
there was something else that you failed in, you practiced lawlessness. And whether you practiced it before you did it, or you did it many times in order to say that you practice it however you want to explain that, it won't matter. Do it one time and it's over. That's it. That's the standard of the law. Why would he say these things here in Matthew chapter 7? In order to lead a person to a point of absolute despair. Absolute despair to see that there is no hope outside of the grace and mercy of God. He was speaking to people who didn't get that, who didn't understand that. This is the kind of conversation that will be necessary in order to get through to people if they're willing to concede that that is the truth at all. It is very unusual to find someone who will concede that. People do not want to give up the Old Covenant, as I explained earlier. Entrance into the kingdom of heaven is conditional upon no longer practicing lawlessness. How much will be permitted before you reach that state? The answer should be absolutely none. This will be the conversation that will take place where people will try to assert their claim in the kingdom of heaven. But I don't think that's going to end very well for them. If you understand the differences between the Old and the New Covenants, you would not even begin to consider using these verses to talk about whether a person can lose their salvation or not. Because we know that salvation cannot be obtained through obedience and repentance, so what makes you think you can sustain it through obedience or repentance? Well, that's the point. There are people who believe that they can lose their salvation because they make the assumption that they can repent and obey adequately. That is an assumption. I say it's an assumption because of those who I personally have encountered. While they personally believe that they were quite impressive, I didn't think so. And if I don't think so, it's unlikely that God will think so either. But if he does, that's between them and the Lord. But it's important to understand that there are people who do take that position, and as a result, those people do believe that you can lose your salvation either because of the decision of God or because of your decision to reject God. But if such performance is the standard, no one will enter the kingdom of heaven. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net Thank you,